I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimus Vaccine's James Bond podcast. Uh, I'm Jack Eason. I'm joined by Jake Tropila. How are you doing, Jake? Hey, doing fine, Jack. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm excited about this one. This uh, I think this is going to be too. good fodder for discussion. So this oh, is a very special yes. episode in, in a lot of ways. And uh, if nothing else, why is this episode special? Jake, what number episode is this? This is uh, episode 007. We made it. You're damn right. It's all it's all downhill from here, honestly. Uh, yes, we we are on to the seventh episode of this podcast now. Millie, we're on. To, this is only the sixth Bond film of the main Eon series because last month we diverted to Casino Royale, the '67 edition. Which, if I could save you the podcast, but you should go listen to it anyway. We didn't like it. No, uh, but thankfully we're we're for good back reason on, too. Yeah, we're we're back on track again. Uh, and we're back to the main series, although this is not the series we left in a lot of ways. There's a lot of changes coming up because uh, the sixth film, the series, is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which famously doesn't have Sean Connery. So I guess I guess we should get that oh one my. out of the way. If you're looking for Sean Connery, it's not going to happen. He's not in this movie. Not at all. Not even a little Hitchcock cameo. Nothing. Uh, he was pretty fed up with the series at this point, I believe, so he decided he would try pastures elsewhere. Yeah, basically, you only live twice, uh, broke his spirit, He, the character became bigger than the man, and uh, he became very cold and distant with the producers and wouldn't even acknowledge them on set. So he decided after that film, uh, no more, James Bond. Never again, as they say. So... Uh, producers Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli scrambled to find their lead, and they found him in Australian male model George Lazenby. Quite a, quite the. Uh, well, well, so, what, what are you? What are your thoughts on that? What do you think of uh, Lazenby? Because I think, as far as uh, Bond films go, Lazenby is uh, the only one who's probably the most synonymous with the film he's in, because this is his only film. Jack, are you there? Oh my! You know I I am here. Sorry, ah. no. Uh, that was that was I was muting my microphone because a cat. Because ah. I'm turning into my own personal Blofeld here. I now have a cat on my lap, and I <laughs> thought I hit the button to fix that, and I totally didn't. So I was uh, I was slightly on mute for that whole thing. Darn technological gremlins getting to me again. Sorry. Right. Yes, we're yes, here. yes. We're we're here. Things are working. We know what we're doing. We're professionals. Honest. So uh, with cat in my lap, I I will talk about George Lazenby, who I think honestly is. Yeah, I, I agree. He's certainly his his one outing. Um, he's really he got a lot of flack for it because he wasn't Sean Connery. He had a real big big shoes to fill. Honestly, I think he does a really great job. I'm really I I have no problems with Lazenby as Bond. Honestly, I I am so glad you said that. I I find that his of all the Bonds, his is the most undervalued and underappreciated. Precisely because he had to file, follow Sean Connery, and uh, it, it, frankly, it, it, it feels like a suicide pass to try to do that because Bond or Connery essentially created the character as we see him on screen, and 
anybody is going to look uh, lesser next to Connery. So, uh, but I think with what he's given and especially how Bond, his characters goes in the film, I think Lazenby does quite a remarkable job, to be honest. I think so. And, and it's worth noting, he was a male model prior to yeah. this and a, and used car salesman. He was not an actor. He'd done TV commercials. That was really his, the full extent of his acting, uh, acting career. Um, and I know on Hulu right now, there's a documentary, Becoming Bond, which was released last year, which is basically George Lazenby telling his life story and how he became Bond, which I would suggest, you know, take a large grain of salt with a lot of the presentation of things within that. But there is, it, it is true, he pretty much kind of blagged his way into the role based on his good looks and his kind of swagger. He was, he was certainly could not have been hired for his acting chops because he didn't have any acting chops. Yeah, and he's he yeah he basically lied his way into the role. He got a haircut and a suit tailored like Connery, uh, and then he basically barged into the producer's office and ran past all their secretaries to to introduce himself. And they asked him, "Well, what have you done?" And he made up lies about this is before IMDb, so he's able to lie about you know having done films overseas. And uh, they you know took him around the the camp the the ranch. Where he proved to be an adept uh, fighter, swimmer, horseback rider, and they essentially hired him on the spot. So yeah, we we got Bond going. Yep, for sure. And and yeah, he's uh, he basically just kind of occupied the role. And what what's interesting, I suppose, he kind of occupied the space of Sean Connery to get the role. But then I think from almost the first instance of this movie, the gun barrel sequence, he immediately changes things up. He does. Mm. He, he gives. I I took my notes and I wrote down. Lazenby gives good gun barrel. <laughs> I, I really like the sequence. He drops to one knee as he turns and shoots. It's a, it's a nice little variation on a theme. So he's kind of like he he's occupying Connery's space to get the role, but then once he's on the screen, he's very defiantly not Connery. And James Bond is different because of it, the whole thing. He's kind of like a leaner kind of... And, and also worth mentioning, he's the youngest person who's ever played James Bond at this point. He was 29 years old, mm -hmm. so he's younger than, than Connery and much younger than Daniel Craig and Pierce Brosnan and Roger Moore uh, when they took the role. So he, he was kind of... He gave a youthful exuberance, and of course he was supposed to do a multi-picture deal, but for reasons we'll probably discuss later on, that didn't happen. Uh, so he has a sole James Bond credit to his, his name. Yeah, and probably the... One thing that he's most famous for, aside from playing uh, John Stamos's father in Never Too Young to Die. <laughs> Go listen to our podcast discussion on that. Yes, Any indeed. Anyways, yeah, so let's get into it. As you mentioned, he's got this, uh, I, yeah, I think it's a terrific gun barrel. I like when a Bond adds their own little flavor to it. He drops down to a knee, and it's a very, it, compared to Connery and Bob Simmons, his is a very slick, smooth motion. It just is all in, like... God, one shot, and like Connery kind of wobbles when he does the stance, and Bob Simmons does that that hideous jump to dodge the bullet of the attacker or something. It, yeah, it, it does but, look like Lazenby might have been the only one who actually shot a gun before. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which yeah. maybe ra raised in Australia might seem more likely than growing up in Scotland or England as being someone who might have taken a shot at something in his life. Yeah. So, all right, we get into our film. Um... MI6 is wondering where Bond is. Uh, Q doesn't know. M doesn't know. Money Penny doesn't know. We cut to a car following a woman in another car to the beach, and we only see the driver of uh, Bond's car. We find out it's Bond in these heavy silhouettes where we just see a close-up of his mouth and his, his beautifully dimpled chin lighting a cigarette. Uh, the woman 
goes out to the ocean and starts to wade in, and Bond gets out of the car and rescues her. She's committing a long goodbye, if you've ever seen that Altman film. That's the first thing I thought of, although I think this was made first. So. Yeah. Granted, well, lots of things have waiting out there, but it had similar lighting, similar dusky lighting. It was a That's a good thing that it reminded me of that film. Yeah, yeah. It's very, <laughs> very interesting photography going on in this scene, because a lot of it looks day for night, but I don't think they had that technology at this time. So well, they, they it, would they would have by by late sixties for sure. Yeah. But it's, I don't. Yeah, it seems like they're cultivating more of a dusky appearance on purpose. I don't like it. Doesn't day for night genuinely looks bad? But I don't know. Like if if that's what they're going for, they own it. It looks it looks well to me. It doesn't bother me too much here. Yeah, I I like it, and especially w- with all the Bond films with their four K restorations on Blu Ray, they all look great. But this film in particular looks really sharp. Like you can pick out the fine detail on on Lazenby's face, and and some of the some of the sets and the costume design in this film are immaculate. I'm gonna I'm gonna get this out of the way and say uh, this is my favorite James Bond film, and I will even make a case for it as the best Bond film in the entire series. And you wouldn't be alone in that actually, because yeah. that's uh, something we'll discuss later. But this is very much the reclaimed Bond film. The the yeah. fans reclaimed this one. Yeah, this is when you mentioned earlier. It's all downhill from here. I, I, uh, I take that to heart. It really is. Although that's not to say later on we have a few gems because there's still plenty of good things to come. Because I mean, there's still octopusy for God's sake. Oh my God, yes. Who, who doesn't love racism in India? All right. Anyway, so back to the beach. Bond saves this woman from drowning. He introduces himself with the Bond James Bond line, but he's then attacked by two men with knives and guns. Bond fights him off, and the girl runs away. And then Bond, having recovered from the fight, gets up, looks in the barrel of the camera and says, this never happened to the other fellow. Cut to opening credits. Yeah, uh, it's, now, before we get to that, let's talk mm-hmm. about this line. <laughs> it's um, just James Bond busting the fourth wall along with everything. He's busted so many chops along the way. It's only a matter of time before he took out the fourth wall, too. Yeah, so... I think this is a, a a lot of people don't like the line more more uh, especially since Bond's looking in the camera as he said it's the tail end of it but uh, I I kind of like it I think it's a cute little reference to Connery uh, you know the producers are well aware they don't have Sean Connery and they're just like guys come on this is a Bond film we're gonna have fun let's move forward okay I don't I've never personally had a problem with the with that line in general how did you how did you feel about it having Does sat it- through six Conneries. Six, six Conneries. Or no, fives. I think this five. I think yeah. Five. That's right. Sorry. Five Conneries, one Lazenby. We've got some more Connery will be coming up later, but but not in this one. Oh, so, yeah, boy. no, I think this one, I, like, I think this line works quite well. I think it's, like, you're right. It's playful. It's also, it's in the pre credit sequence, which is nominally where the films all play. It's where, you know, you kind of, you can have a little bit of fun. This is where Sean Connery came in with a seagull on his head. And in a wetsuit, yeah. came out and dropped out, took his wetsuit out, and has a perfectly dapper tuxedo underneath. If he That's can right. do that, then Lazenby can, you know, have a quick wink to the camera. I don't have a problem with that. I do think maybe later on the movie oversteps in a few places of like reminding us of other James Bond movies. There's like a, a this obsession with convincing us, like, hey, you know, even though Sean Connery is not here, this is still 
a James Bond movie because like he ruffles, rifles through his desk and finds like yeah uh, Ursula Andress's belt and a few other things and and there's a, a caretaker whistling the Goldfinger theme. They maybe overstep that just a little bit later on. That this is actually almost like the the most overt, but I say it's at the start, so it's fine. But then throughout the rest of the film, they really are leaning heavily on hey, remember remember the other films? Like you're you're still on board, right? Yeah, and th- I think the most egregious example of that is in the opening credit sequence, which oh, after know. after Bond drops his line, we hear John Barry's orchestra flare up. I love this. I'm chair dancing as we as we go. Yeah, I'll let it I'll let it roll in the background, but. So yeah, during the famous opening title sequences um, of this film, we're treated to images from previous Bond films, and you can really tell that the producers are sweating their balls off to convince the <laughs> audience of 1969, guys, don't worry, this is a Bond film, we've, we've had, remember these adventures, we want you to know this is the same man, we want to keep going with this adventure, it's, uh, it's a lot of heavy lifting on their part, and I yeah. think uh, it's kind of, I kind of probably detracts from Lazenby's performance as Bond. But, um... Yeah, there's a point point where I think they lost faith in the audience a little bit to move on with things. You know, I think if they just kept that one line, that would have done it. I mean, after that, there's no question. He's James Bond. He does what James Bond does uh, quite adequately. So, you know, leave it at that. I mean, it opens with M and Q in a very rare scene where they're not with James Bond. I don't think we've ever seen Q without james bond before oh, there might have I've, been a scene might have been a scene in in from russia with love i don't recall but like that's pretty much he's always there with bond yeah he calls in the the quartermaster and from russia with love but you're right it's it's all just mi6 in the very first scene in the movie and they're there and and that's kind of a like a meta wink to the audience like hey where's james bond and then cut to lazenby in the car yeah so yeah it's it, yeah it feels like they're they're just eh, you know like one line, let it go. Like we're good. Yeah, and then and then yeah, Bond is uh well a lot of stuff happens before this part, but yeah, Bond's relieved of Operation Bedlam, which is the hunt for Blofeld, and he goes back to his office and pulls out all the trinkets from previous films, which out of I, his tiny desk. Yeah, what? Why did he keep uh, Red Grant's watch garrot wire? That, well, that doesn't make any sense. He probably he probably just thinks it's like it really keeps time well. Like it probably yeah. goes with a pair of oh, cufflinks he's got that's just really nice. I let it kills on the weekend. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. Like he's this one that you struck me. He's this tiny desk, and it's like, can you imagine when a paperwork someone like James Bond would have to fill out? Because he just like I mean, the last two films he's killed twenty plus people in international territories. Like, not yeah. even in England. Like, his paperwork quota must be insane. And he's got this goofy, tiny desk. And all the drawer space is taken up with, like, Ursula Andress's ginormous diving belt. Like, how does that stay in there for eight years? That, that's been lying in that thing or whatever. Six years, whatever. Yeah. You know, he must... I mean, he just, just doesn't do his paperwork. I guess he's so great. He bet he gets money penny to do it for him. Yeah, so uh, one thing we didn't mention at the top of this, uh, I have... We've... I've Sure, we've discussed the year 1969 already, but this film is directed by Peter Hunt, who was previously the editor on all of the five previous Bond films. So if anyone knew how to put a Bond film together, it would surely be this guy, and I think he does a fantastic job. 
Um, he definitely puts a stamp on it. And he brought yeah. in a lot of people with him as well. Uh, cinematographer Michael Reed and a few others. Um, I think Richard Maybaum as well. Or no, Richard Maybaum was working in the screenplay prior to this. But uh, John Glenn, the editor, who and John Glenn would go on to become a director yeah. of his own right. He actually has directed more Bond movies than anyone. He's directed five of them, but that would come a little bit later on. But yeah, um, yeah Hunt brought in a lot of people from him you know from his own stable from he was kind of because he was trying to establish himself as a director he was supposed to do uh you want to live twice i believe and then he got replaced at the last minute or, or someone else who didn't return a phone call returned one or whatever and they just went with someone else so this yeah, was like his Gilbert. payoff that's yeah. right and and then peter orhunt never directed another james bond movie which no uh, it, which is interesting because this really is definitely this is a really kind of slick production this is um it, there's nothing egregiously wrong with this. So, uh, and it, and if anything, it actually it, it distinguishes itself in several facets. So it's kind of unusual. I don't I don't know. Do you know? Like, was there a falling out? Was or was it just he moved on to bigger, better things? He felt. Yeah, I am not. To be honest, I'm not a hundred percent certain on the the trajectory of Peter Hunt's directing career as far as Bond films went. I'm I'm I guess I guess with just with this film, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of stress to make a film that audiences would accept. And I know we'll discuss the box office later, but this wasn't, this one wasn't as financially successful as the previous bond films. So I think that that could have possibly discouraged him. And, uh, he wanted to take it one direction, but, um, with, uh, with the time he's given here though, he does make a very indelible effort. He does. He makes very good effort. This is also the longest James Bond movie to, to date. And in fact, it's the longest one. To, to, well, Casino Royale, I believe, the, the 2006 edition is the, was longer, and it was it took them until yeah. 2006 to make a film that was longer. We'll get to that one way down the road. That's right. Um, It'll be over a year or so from now. Tune in next time. Yeah, um, I'm sure you can't wait. But yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of good reason why this is one of the longest Bond films, in that the first 30 minutes have a very relaxed pacing that often reminded me of Dr. No, but not just relaxed in the fact that... Um, uh, the plot is really taking its time, but like there's almost no plot discussed. Like Blofeld isn't even mentioned until the 30 minute mark of the movie. Uh, and uh, after the pre-title sequence, we see Bond is goes to a casino hotel and uh, he checks into a room. And let me just say, people talk about how wooden uh, George Lazenby's performance is. I like to think that that man is carved out of wood because he wears <laughs> a suit like no other Bond before or after him. His, he's, he, yeah, he is sharp. His his clothes are well tailored. They fit his body nice. He's got a he's got a good lean, lanky body. I like it. Yeah, yeah, no, so it's sure. He's he's like to me. He is. He's like the leaner, lithe James Bond too. Like Sean Connery's a little bit more physical, stocky kind of a presence. Um, and certainly Sean Connery could never have pulled off that uh, ruffled sh- uh, kind of shirt that that Lazenby wears early on. That is a. <laughs> That's I don't know if any of the other Bonds could ever pull that off. That's a Lazenby special, right or, there, or or even a, a kilt, as we later or a get kilt. into. Yeah, how uh, do you get get rid of the Scotsman and then dress the next guy in a kilt? Yeah, that is that's obscene. Um, Genius. So one of my favorite little uh, this is like a very hard film for me to watch and take notes because I I truly just get sucked into the movie and just start admiring many things about it. Um, for instance, when Bond checks into the hotel, he goes up to his room, he looks out the window, we see this nice overhead shot of the pool 
during the daytime, and then it match dissolves to a nighttime shot of the exact same shot of the pool, but the words casino were reflected in the still waters. So there's a lot of great little edits like that throughout the film that Peter Hunt is really like knows what to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For uh, sure. Bond goes to, uh, I believe it's a Baccarat table. There he meets the suicidal woman again who tried to kill herself and she's living this destructive life. Um, she bets $20,000 on a hand and loses it and doesn't have money to pay. So Bond offers to get her out of the red and, uh, invite, he meets with her. She introduces herself as Tracy. Um, her full name is Teresa de Vicenzo, but she says, Teresa was a saint. I'm known as Tracy. And she asks, why you insist on rescuing Mr. Bond? And he's, uh, very fascinated by this woman. Um, now what do you think of Tracy, Jack? Tracy, Tracy's an interesting one. I mean, she she appears and she's given a lot of time early on from her suicidal effort. And then, you know, as you say, there's a leisurely pace to this, which is, of course, to set up. I mean, there's no point in disguising this. This is the Bond girl James Bond marries. So she's not yeah. your regular Bond girl. She's supposed she's certainly she's supposed to represent something else. She's, a, a, as you say, alluring to James Bond or something about what she's doing that he's really intrigued by her. Um, so yeah, she, I think she's, and of course she's played by Diana Rigg, who's, I guess, primarily was famous as Emma Peel in the Avengers, the British TV series, best mm. and more, in many cases now, uh, I, I would actually, you know what, a couple of years ago, best remembered for the awful Hollywood adaptation, but I feel like everyone's forgotten that since, so honestly, maybe everyone's back to thinking of the TV show. Starring uh, Sean Connery. Starring Sean, yes, indeed, that's... That's yeah, why not. Have um, you ever course, seen any of the Avengers? The I've seen some. Of the, yeah, I've seen some of the TV show. It was I caught episodes here and there. It was always pretty good fun. I don't really have major recollection of what it was like, but uh, yeah, you know, it was if like TV of the time, uh, episodic, looked incredibly cheap, uh, ridiculous often, but uh, it worked pretty well. Had a good sense of humor about it. Um, and of course, uh, Diana Rigg is probably, I guess, for now actually, she's probably was well known for playing Elena Tyrell in in Game of Thrones, That's which right. I for- I totally forgotten she was in. That. I'd seen Game of Thrones recently, and it, the show has not left a huge impact on me. I was like, I was looking at after, I was like, oh yeah, that's right, she was in that for a bit there. And yeah. she was actually one. Of, she was actually one of the better characters in there for a while too, actually. But uh, yeah, I'm not a huge Game of Thrones fan. Sorry, everyone. So. Um, it's fine, uh, but yeah, Diana Rigg, I think does she does well. It's it's I don't know. It's kind of interesting when you discuss the film going on. I do feel mm-hmm. that maybe there's there's an element of it's I don't know. It's uh, there's the debate of is her mystery is that what draws Bond in that he doesn't quite know what to make of her and that's why he becomes so attracted to her or is she just maybe a little too sparsely written? Is there a little narrative convenience? To the the way they're drawn together, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a hundred percent convinced of the the love story that emerges within the film. I feel it kind of it, at certain points it needs it figures where it needs to get to, and it just kind of gets there by by dragging together. But um, I mean, it's it's certainly she's as you say the kind of the the prototypical Bond girl in a lot of ways in that she she she's interesting because she kind of can fend for herself. She's obviously suicidal at some yeah. point, but she but she gets over it uh, in a very That's true. Uh, just That's true. you know. But uh, she starts giving as good as she gets later on in the film. She's not like a super secret agent or whatever. Granted, her father is uh, the head of Europe's largest uh, crime gang, except for Spectre, 
which Bond helpfully reminds her father of, was like, yeah, I know you're the head of, like, an incredibly dangerous crime gang, but Spectre's bigger. Like, you're number two. Yeah. Uh, you're Android to Apple to Spectre's Apple or <laughs> whatever. But, um, yeah, so so I guess she grew up around crime, but she separates herself from it. She's kind of not associated with her father's business. Her father who weirdly wants uh, James Bond to marry her. That that I, I'm not so entirely sure of the the... He gives, he offers her a million, offers him a million dollars to woo his daughter, which is kind of this weird money changing theme because honestly, they sleep together in the very beginning, pretty much soon after meeting. Yeah. And it's over, over the, the, the exchange of him, he bailed her out at the Baccarat table. So she pays back her debt by sleeping with him, which is an incredibly icky prostitution vibe to it. But then she also leaves 20,000 francs, what she owes him as well, to I guess shape it back to being it what for her this you know she actually she wanted to do it she had the money all along but you know why not have a role in the hay while she's up there yeah so it's like it's not like she you know can't afford it it's just she really is out to destroy herself and this is a broken damaged woman and at the expense of sounding sexist I think that that's something that Bond is really attracted to that this is the first woman he's met in this in the first woman we meet in the series who doesn't immediately fall head over heels in love with him in his charm. Because, uh, And I give credit to Lazenby for having a very sensitive and human performance, because if this were Sean Connery in the role, uh, Diana Rigg would be in his bed by morning. Um, <laughs> it, it would... It, it it would not be good because now I, Connery's I, a bit of a brood when it comes to women, but Lazenby, there's something very, very gentle and understanding about the way that that he treats women but at the same time he's not afraid to get rough when she i do like the bit where she points his gun at her or her he, she points his gun at him and the way he just casually grabs her wrist to point the gun out of the way i think that's very nice yeah he sees the tough dude i don't know it's just a weird gender politics to the whole thing which obviously falls to uh uh, yes, uh, another time. Um, yeah, I don't. I do feel like the thing about Diana and because God, because uh, she's the best character who has no more part in the entire series. But I always think back to what could have been with Sylvia Trench yeah. <laughs> of the of the first two Bond movies. Or well, she yeah, she was in the first two and Doctor No, and then showed up briefing for Russia with Love. Who was honestly the other Bond girl who basically was like as horny as James Bond and pretty much just like. They had they had sex and then it was like it was totally business. She was not falling head over heels in love with him either. I feel like she was just in it for fun, um, and she wasn't damaged either. She would seem to be a successful operating businesswoman herself. I feel like Sylvia Trench deserves her own spin-off series. Yeah, we she, need the uh, the Trench Files. Is what the we Trench call Files? It. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. made that up. Yes. All right, let's get that. Let's get that rolling. Uh, in the age of rebooting everything with, you know, with a female perspective, I think Sylvia Trench is honestly is rife for reclaiming. But, um, yeah, <laughs> let's let's try and get that going. Not that most people outside of the most diehard Bond aficionados is ever going to know what we're talking about. But, yeah, yeah, Sylvia Trench for president. Sylvia, I agree. Sylvia 2020. Trench 2020. Um, all right, we're jump I'm jumping around a bit here because there's a few few great little things we missed. Um, Bond agrees originally to meet uh, Diana Rigg or Tracy in her hotel room. When she's there, one of her father's goons is in the room, and they lead to this uh, this hotel room scuffle that's almost on par. If it weren't uh, if it were longer, it would be on par. I would say with the train fight and with From Russia with Love. 
Um, Bond is, uh, or Lazenby, I think, is very adept at throwing a mean punch on camera. He's got just this <laughs> wild haymaker swing about him. He does. It's a that, really crazy. I don't know. I'm not as won over by the action sequences in this, and I, I think we'll we'll probably you know this mm. will be a point of a point of contention perhaps between us. Yeah, yeah he does well, have this really exaggerated swing. I don't. I just don't feel these action sequences have the kind of the the tightness in terms of the the physicality and the falls and the blows of From Russia with Love or that great office fight in the in the You Want to Live Twice. But I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's a solid it's a solid start, and there's some interesting elements. I, it's not so much in this fight, but in the next fist fight that we see some really unusual editing uh, techniques arise, which are completely atypical of the Bond films up until this point. There's certain points where it's very much in line with what James Bond, what you expect, which would make sense. Peter Hunt edited all of them, but we start getting these elements of there's this like jump cuts in the next fight sequence and it's really unusual disorienting effect um that like that's just a kind of an unusual setup it kind of reminded me actually a little bit of it made me wonder if these guys had watched uh john boorman's point blank uh which was 67 i believe that came out has similar staccato editing this really kind of heightened a kind of heightened stylized elements to its editing and its cinematography. This film, Honor, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, is much more restrained than that film. That film is a really interesting... If you've never seen it, absolutely seek it out. It's a great film. Lee Marvin plays the hero, and it's like this really uh, hard-boiled crime-revenge film, but with this really incredible technical production edge to it. And yeah. this kind of reminds me of that in this. There's elements of that, the fist fight with these kind of... You know, they edit around, they, like, remove frames and the falls and they get up and the punches to kind of create this unusual speed and, and kind of collision to it. Um, so you're, you're referring to the fight scene um, that, the, yeah, this, where the goons, or the hotel room, or where the goons bring Bond this, back This is later on. This is where, the, where okay. the goons bring him back. So I'm jumping okay. around a little bit, too. It, the first one, the first fight we've seen with the goon is pretty much... Interesting as well, because Bond doesn't kill him. He just knocks him out and leaves him, and uh, that's, mm-hmm. that becomes an interesting thing, because then he goes back to his hotel room, and the goon just goes back and like checks the door and then leaves. And it's like, uh, I don't know, if someone were to, trying to kill me, I feel like, and I had a license to kill people basically with impunity, and I was planning <laughs> to get a good night's sleep, I don't know if that's the course of action I would choose, to just like, leave him lying in the room next door and then just head back to bed. You know, it's, like, it's fine, he'll probably give up now. And he does in this case, but then he comes back with his friends and they kidnap him. And that leads us to the second fight scene, which I'm talking about, which is where they, they take him at knife point back to, to meet their boss. And they pass the janitor whistling the Goldfinger theme and they yeah. have a they have a fight. Uh, James Bond is being led by knife point, but he has a battle with them and that has that unusual editing elements to it. And manages to escape from them only to meet their boss anyway, because he sneaks into the next room, which is where they were taking him anyway, which... I get, it asserts his dominance in the situation that he could have gotten away, but in the end of the day, he just shows up and has a chat anyway. So, yeah, maybe a waste of energy, but so be it. That's how Bond rolls. Yeah, and not only is that like there's a you mentioned a weird staccato rhythm to those the that fight scene, but like just the the way the the sound in that scene of the punches landing, it's like a, a metal zapping echoing down a hallway. It's these very weird 
sonic dis- sonically distorted noises yeah. that end with every punch. And that's, um, again, yeah, reminds me, like I say, of Point Blank, which has like this soundscape of ticking clocks and footsteps walking, echoing through halls. It's got that percussive sound, heightened sound effect. So yeah, I, I just wonder if there was a connection there. John Borman directed Point Blank, who was a English yeah. director. So there, they could have, they could have taken notes. I don't know. It's just a kind of a connection. I kind of made with that looked reminded me a little bit of that and certainly atypical to anything we'd seen beforehand in james yeah. bond this is a new new trick in the bag yeah i'm, I'm sure everyone stole from one another back then oh i'm sure I, i'd steal like steal from the best yeah i'd like to revisit uh point blank i do recall that the very well edited scene of uh uh what's his what's God, why am i blanking on his fate lee marvin walking down the hallway and it's edited to him going back to his apartment, and there's just the sound of his footsteps on the soundtrack, and it's they get louder as he gets closer, and it's great. Um, yeah. All right, but so yeah, Bond enters that office where the thugs take him. He gets down on a knee again, and there's this great zoom into him <laughs> holding a knife ready to throw it, which I that's a shot I've always loved. Uh, it, Con or uh, Lazenby uh, ready to throw down, and uh, there he meets Draco. Uh, Tracy's father, he's the head of his own crime organization, the name of which escapes me because I didn't write it down. Uh, but I've got it here, Union Corsair. Th- Corsair, I, I don't know. Yeah, made up, not the catchiest uh, villain. Yeah. Spectre is definitely a better name for a criminal organization. Right, yeah, it's got a great acronym too. Um, so <laughs> he uh, basically offers his daughter in exchange for helping him find Blofeld. And uh, this leads to uh, a very romantic sequence in the Bond franchise where Tracy and uh, Bond fall in love set to Louis Armstrong's We Have All the Time in the World. Which uh, totally was written for this film, which yeah. is something I kind of forget continually. I know it was used in a Bond film, but I kind of forget John Barry wrote the music for this for, for this movie and Louis Armstrong was brought in and apparently was ill and sang the whole thing in one take. So oh, nice. So good, yeah. Easily one of the best songs to ever appear in a Bond film. I mean, yeah, certainly a song so good that it's completely... Like, Goldfinger's often recalled as, like, maybe the great James Bond theme tune, but it's the James Bond theme tune. This this song completely escaped the genre. You don't need James Bond to think of this movie at all. It's completely escaped the reins of the franchise and become mm-hmm. kind of an established it. So... Yeah, interesting. And it, it's worth noting, I mean, I guess to put it out here, I think John Barry's music in this film is top tier. Probably the best we've had this, yet. Yeah, I agree. I would say between this and, no joke, I think this and The Living Daylights for me are the two best soundtracks. I think I would have to give the edge to this one because I like the instrumental theme a bit more than I like AHA's theme. Although I oh. do really like, I do really like the Aha track. That's a, I think it's a oh, some of those track. '80s Bond themes were great. I'll, yeah. I'm gonna oh, when yeah. we get to when we get to Duran Duran, I'm gonna oh. go off because man, I that's some good stuff right a, there. The view to a but, kill, baby. Yeah, but uh, for for sure, this the and I think like the opening theme, it's it's kind of that's been folded back into the Bond theme. They, they didn't write they didn't write a song called "On Her Majesty's Secret Service." Because it would be really difficult to fit that in lyrically. It was a wise decision. Um, So they they did a key. John Barry composed an instrumental piece. And honestly, it's kind of been folded back into the franchise as like action bond. It's kind of like the the dynamic kind of 
action music and it's a really great piece and it's kind of become the second or I, I feel like kind of the secondary James Bond theme mm-hmm. uh, separate of, of uh, Norman's original James Bond theme which is still obviously frequently called to, to action within the franchise and then not only does he do that then he writes uh, We Have All the Time in the World with uh, I think it's Hal Davis Burt Bacharach's uh, regular lyricist wrote the lyrics for that uh, Burt Bacharach of course did the music for um Casino Royale, the terrible yeah. film we, we discussed last time. So we all these the worst things one, folding yeah. in. Yeah, the worst one. But honestly, Baccarat, as I said, when we were doing it, I feel Baccarat was the person who came away from that gold, and I think his music was great in that film. If only everything else was up to the same standard, it would have been a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. But alas, it is basically like shining a turd, and uh, it didn't really work out. But yeah, um, I think it's worth, worth just interestingly, because I, I can't notice this, um, Draco is placed by Gabrielle Frazzetti, who I guess is probably in a lot of ways is best known for this movie in the English-speaking world. But, like, this guy's career as an Italian actor, this guy has worked with everyone. He kind of reminds me of uh, Tiger Tanaka uh, in the previous one. You know, as a Japanese actor, worked with everyone. Frazzetti, of course, is he played the male lead in, in La Ventura, mm-hmm. which, you know, is pretty big. He made at least two films. He was also in Le Amiche, so he made at least two films, Antonioni. He's worked with Sergio Leone. He was in Once Upon a Time in the West. He worked with Sergio Corbucci, Alberto Latuado, Elio Petri, uh, Mario Monicelli, Vincent Minnelli, Fernando De Leo, the great crimes uh, filmmaker. Fernando De Leo's films are great fun. Costa Gavras, he was in The Conversation, I believe. Uh, John Huston, and he was in Lucia Fulci's The Clairvoyant, which is not a very good movie, but so it's kind of, actually, it's it's not a good movie, but are any of Lucia Fulci's movies uh, uh, good? That's the question that everyone, I feel, has to arrive at their own answer to. They're In a lot of ways, they're good precisely because they're not good. They have a very strange rhythm to them. Um, but yeah, his career is like an insane who's who of everyone who's anyone in Italian cinema. And he did a few films in the in the West as well. He was dubbed in this one. Uh, he, he was mm, dubbed by... Someone named David de Kaiser. He spoke. He, he spoke really good English, but uh, heavily accented. So the, he suffered the fate of many a woman in the James Bond universe by being dubbed. His voice was taken from him. This but is, so be it. Yeah, this is one of the last Bond films to heavily use dubbing throughout the film, and that also extends to our Bond himself in a in a in a character we'll meet That's in rough. a bit. But yes. um, yeah, so Draco. Uh, clues Bond into a uh, lawyer who is corresponding with Blofeld. Blofeld is hiding in a resort on top of a mountain in Switzerland. Where, as you do. As you do, exactly. He's got a, about a dozen women cap- held captive. He's trying to uh, get the title of account as well as amnesty for his uh, crimes. And the the plot is, this is this is what some people kind of criticize, is that for the one of the more grounded Bonds... Uh, this the plot is a bit funky as to what Blofeld's doing. I, d- I didn't want to say anything, but that is a certain reservation I have too. Yeah. It is worth mentioning overall. This is a very ground James Bond movie. We don't go into space. There isn't a volcanic layer. None of that stuff. This is very much a plot-driven Bond movie. There's no gadgets practically. Yeah. Um. You know. So yeah, it is very grounded. But then the plot itself is not as grounded as maybe it could be. Yeah, but for a film, the overall effort is more grounded and dare I say realistic. Oh, for sure. There's, there's yeah. all there, this will happen a couple more times throughout the series where it just gets to the extreme point uh, of how a Bond film could be, 
And then the next film is a much more serious and grounded effort. Like, after Moonraker, which is probably the zaniest of all the Bond films, <laughs> the next film, For Your Eyes Only, is very uh, muted in comparison. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so Bond uh, meets with this... Uh, I've, he he uh, meets with the College of Arms professor named oh, Hilary Sir Bray. Hilary Bray, yes. Sir Hilary Bray, he's there to uh, talk about Bond's lineage. Bond... Uh, his family crest is uh, the world is not enough. That's their motto, which would later become a Bond film. Pay pay attention. That'll come yeah. back in later. <laughs> That's right. This will be on the test. Uh, so Bond impersonates Hillary Bray to go up and meet Blofeld. And this includes Bond donning a very uh, professor-like, I guess you could say, disguise. He's got <laughs> nerdy glasses and a hat and a tweed suit. Uh, and then he's also dubbed by the actor who plays Hilary Bray to give him this uh, awful, stuffy voice, which which is also kind of an, uh, used as an argument against Lazenby because he plays the role too well, some would say. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, what do you think of uh, Sir Hilary Bray? Well, what's, what's interesting about Bray, I suppose, well, first off, it's played by George Baker, who I grew up seeing here and there on uh, Ruth Rendell Mysteries, which is a very popular British Sunday, like, Sunday evening prestige television, uh, you know, where just, you know, a nice, lovely spot of murder and then then a, an investigation to solve, to, to kind of put things together. That's how we did it between that and a touch of frost and uh, whatever, Inspector Morse. So he, he went on to many great things. He was an established actor even at this point. What is interesting I didn't realize is apparently Ian Fleming originally considered Baker a good candidate to play Bond when they were starting the franchise off. So that could have been a very weird uh, other other road of, of, of James Bond in another yeah. alternate universe. But... Um, yeah, I, th- I think he's he he kind of has a small role here, and he's he's just sort of the stuffy. This is a fantastically English construction here, although it does it it reflects interesting because this is something I do really like about this film is, um, I'm not entirely taken with their perspective on Blofeld in this film, and would they do some different things with him? They go in a very different direction to uh, Blofeld of previous films but one thing i do think is really interesting is there's this whole discussion basically about their i can't remember what he's the member of but it's it's the the institution that tracks royal lineage and family crests and so on and it's this incredibly you know stuffy sort of you know class based thing that you know kind of like keeps track of who's really important and who's of good stock and etc mm-hmm. etc and that's that's very english and very you know kind of typical of the Bond series, which is very much obsessed with uh, kind of a certain... There are no poor people in James Bond movies, certainly not around Bond's uh, general, you know, vicinity until he goes to another country or whatever. But uh, what is interesting is the concept that that Blofeld, for all of his extortion and craziness... Ooh, did something fall over there? I almost... I leaned back in my chair to stretch. I almost fell over. I'm fine. <laughs> Need a stunt double. <laughs> I get yeah. it. We'll get one there. But what's what's interesting is that Blofeld, for all of his extortion and madness and, and his, his control and his plotting and everything that's kind of been established, he is weirdly obsessed with becoming a real-life count. And it's clarified in the movie that he's basically, he's not actually of noble lineage. It's He's he's lying his way into this even. No, he cuts his earlobes off because the, uh, the Blofelds or whatever they're called is... Uh, I can't remember the the uh, the Balthazar de Blochamp. The the de Blochamps are known for having no earlobes. That's apparently. right. Apparently, uh, so so 
Blofeld cut his off. It's not shown in the film. It's just mentioned later on that he apparently did some radical alterations to himself to make him pass for this. And really, he wants this. And it's. I think that's a great element to it. It's this kind of petty class awareness that that permeates Blofeld, this insecurity that he is an outsider, he is a villain, and he really wants this respectability that people like James Bond can take for granted. So yeah. that... <laughs> <laughs> to me that i think is a really a really nice little touch and and it's it's characterized through hillary bray who bond takes over from because uh, obviously hillary bray is just some stuffy professor and he's not really cut out to go to the top of the mountain and take on blofeld yeah so let's talk about blofeld in the last film we saw him in uh blofeld was played by donald pleasance connery was uh i almost said connery was played by james bond uh, which is which is kind of true, but uh, James Bond was played by yeah, Connery. I think that was the major problem at that point was that Connery was being yeah. played by James Bond. So here, uh, Bond is played by Lazenby, and Blofeld is played by Kojak himself, Mister Telly Savalas. Yes, indeed. Uh, now I think uh, Telly is easily my favorite of the Blofelds. Um, Donald Pleasant certainly has a very like he has, he's iconic because he's the first one and he's got the scar and everything. But Telly really infuses him with so much personality and character. And he's like, he's like a great big thug, but he's so almost like devilishly charismatic about, about himself. And, and I think uh, it, it's, this is one of the things that the film never outright addresses as to why these two sworn enemies don't recognize each other when they first meet. But um, I, that's They're, just one of the things you kind of have to accept and move on. It's a movie. That is, yeah, that is a continuity element that it's, it's yeah. James Bond goes undercover. Uh, originally in the script for this, apparently James Bond, there was a storyline that Bond underwent plastic surgery so that he could, he'd look completely different. And then he was going to go undercover to, to find Blofeld. And that would also conveniently capture the fact that James Bond, George Lazenby did not look like Sean Connery, but they, right. I think sensibly dumped that. That was considering all the other steps they took to kind of convince us that, uh, to convince us that we're in the same franchise. It felt like that would have been a step too far to also have, you know, his plastic surgery so yeah so it's just kind of taken like hey they 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 don't recognize each other don't ask why and um, i'm not as i gotta admit i'm not as taken with telly savalas and this this may be just a kind of a a kind of a perception thing or perspective i do like the little nuances of his insecurities that they inject um mm-hmm. but i do think i i just really like the blofeld who is just the the kind of guy in the chair who's plotting and scheming you know, he's kind of, he's a brain and he's just kind of convoluting and, and twisting all kinds of unknowing actors to their fate without them even realizing it, that he doesn't need to be a physical presence. Um, Telly Savalas obviously is, is a much more physically imposing figure and, and specifically because he, he moves around. They separate, they separate him from his cat and from his chair. He's a guy, he walks around and interacts with people in this movie and even participates when they go out and chasing Bond later on. Blofeld True. Yeah. strap on his helmet and go skiing out after him. He could not, would not have seen Donald Pleasant's character doing that. Pleasant yeah, just pretty no much way. runs away. Although honestly, yeah. in terms of physical skill, Pleasance does manage to hold on to that cat uh, while the explosions are going off and you only live twice, which is an impressive feat. But yeah, Telly Savalas has that kind of physicality to it, but I'm not sure I'm 
it's I don't know if it's just the direction that I I feel Blofeld works best in. I don't and maybe it's just a, a learning curve thing. You know, I've this is the first time I've kind of watched the films in sequence. So there's kind of that shift from it and it's it's like there's that great like Blofeld just exists as as a man in a chair seen from behind for the first couple of films and then Don Pleasance gives a face with a scar which disappears also there's another continuity uh mm-hmm. discontinue discontinuation but um yeah, so so it's it's like he you know he kind of he appears in You Only Live Twice. He's given a character, and I like Pleasance's Blofeld personally. I think he's he's kind of slimy and wormy, and and sort of he knows exactly what he's doing, and he gets foiled because they all come in, they blow up all his toys, and he just but he still has an escape plan. He still he can get away. He knows what he needs to do. So I, I yeah. I, Telly Savalas, I think, does very well here, and he was hired specifically because of his performance in The Dirty Dozen, which was kind of came in before that, where he played hmm. the crazy, maggot, he played yeah. like the yeah maggot, the unhinged convict who basically destroys the whole plan because he's a rapist murderer. That's um, yeah, <laughs> which, which you know, which is you know, you think maybe that's not so surprising considering the whole story. That film involves hardened criminals being drafted in to do incredibly dangerous work. Maybe he's the sane one in there. Honestly, who knows? Hmm. He's you know, he he respects no god or masters, but he gets shot for his trouble. So, uh, but he kind of impressed the the producers with that turn, and he and he has that menacing. Um, Savalas is interesting, I guess, as an actor in that he honestly, more than a lot of actors, is really evenly split between his villainous roles and his heroic roles. He could really, he kind of got typecast to one extreme or the other, but he occupied both extremes with a fair amount of regularity. And of course, he's best known for Kojak, I guess, who's a good guy. But, um, you know, Dirty Dozen, Blofeld are definitely iconic uh, or yeah, or iconic yeah. Savalas roles. So yeah, it's it's kind of a little bit interesting. This is an early role for Savalas too. I suppose he was kind of known, but he was nowhere near as big a star as he'd become. This is prior to Kojak, etc. One yeah. thing that I did realize is kind of interesting is apparently yeah, he shaved his head to play Pontius Pilate in The Greatest Story Ever Told in 1965, and he just he liked that look. So he, that's why he's he's forever more had a shaved head so i kind of i'm I'm tempted to go back prior to 65 and see telly savalas he had a couple of tv roles etc and see him with hair i think that would disturb me far more than than blofeld being a, a, a thug and a heavy physical presence in this movie yeah i do i he does have a great shapely head and uh and i i think maybe what i like about him aside from the personality is that like I I like Pleasance enough, but um I he certainly cannot pull off any of the things that Telly Savala says in the film, and I think uh, part of what makes him such a compelling villain for me is that he's very much proactive in his intent to kill Bond. Like he, you know, nominally Pleasance would just send a horde of henchmen after Bond, but like as you mentioned, Telly Savalas is like leading the downhill ski chase <laughs> after Bond, which is unprecedented for most Bond films. They like to just stick to their comfy lairs and let the let the henchmen do the dirty work. It's true. Yeah, it's credited actually in this. There's, there's a character named Grunther who is his apparently number one henchman, yeah, yeah. his number one henchman who honestly is barely even like if Hans was anonymous as the henchman and you only live twice I feel like Grunther's even more anonymous um although as an interesting point he's played by Yuri Borienko who is a stuntman and a wrestler apparently and he was the man that George Lazenby broke his nose in an audition and apparently that was what pushed him over into getting the role because he 
he took he was able to swing wild and, and hurt someone and apparently uh saltzman and, and broccoli took that as a good indication of you know that he could play them a rough and tumble bond along with the suave kind of sexy bond so yeah. uh, i guess uh borienko like hopefully was well remunerated for getting his nose broken just so someone else could get a bigger paycheck but so it goes yeah. And I think it's a important distinction mm-hmm. is that uh, Grunther is killed by uh, Tracy in the climax of the film, which uh, I and, and not in like a, a some sort of cheap way, I guess. Although he just the, the he is killed with this outlandish wall art, which are just death spikes that are sticking out horizontally. Yes, I yeah, I took I took note of that and called them Chekhov's spiky wall decorations. Yeah, because yeah, they show back. up. It's like, why, why would you have spikes sticking out of a wall unless someone's going to get stuck on those spikes? And yeah. sure enough. But yeah, no, he he gets in a very brutal fight with, with Tracy Bond. And like he's grinding her hand into a crystal statue to get her to drop the weapon she's holding. Uh, it's very, very nasty bit of business. But kudos to her for holding her own. I don't think any other Bond girl does that. Not, to, or not that I can recall. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that that is one of the interesting elements of Tracy. She kind of gets wrapped up in she actively gets wrapped up in in Bond's world, really. Uh, she follows him, and and then when the going gets tough, she kind of meets meets him halfway on it. She holds her own, honestly. For for most of the film, actually, for a while, she kills more people than James Bond. Um, yeah. Although I guess some doubt could be thrown that one of the earliest things she does, she she. In that there's, I mean, early but late in the film. This is a weird one in that, honestly, um, James Bond doesn't kill anyone in this film until an hour and thirty-seven minutes in. When we talk about the muted, grounded James Bond, you know, the body counts were steadily rising through the the ranks to the point where Thunderball tripled the body count. I think of all of the preceding James Bond movies uh, in one go, and then You Only Live Twice matched that body count. This resets everything. Bond doesn't kill anyone for the longest time. He's really sleuthing and setting up his his encounter with Blofeld. And somewhere before he manages to do that, Tracy crashes a bunch of car, a car full of henchmen, which bursts into flames. And we presume all are dead, except that one of them actually does show up later. But I reckon the other three people in the car died. And so for a long time, Tracy's actually... Uh, greater harbinger of death than the man himself with the actual the guy the professional with the license to do it tracy's out here doing unlicensed killing yeah no tracy's magnificent and uh cruelly after draco basically pimps out tracy to bond she disappears for like an hour and and uh when after bond has the after the we have all the time in the world bond goes up to meet with blofeld and tracy is uh nowhere in sight to be found uh, however, uh, at so a part of uh, Blofeld's mission is that he has uh, a dozen women, his uh, nicknamed his Angels of Death, uh, who are living up in the Pitts Gloria Lair. And uh, going back to John Barry's music, I love this the that music cue of Bond entering and seeing the girls because it sounds like this. Oh, take me now! It's so good. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna let that play for the rest of our uh, podcast. Oh, there it goes. So, man, I didn't even bring champagne. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it's that's a really like I would say a reserved Bond film up until that point, and then suddenly we have this 
James Bond confronted by this room with 12 beautiful women who are apparently all very thirsty because there's no other there's no other men eligible bachelors in this place. It's yeah. a very interesting thing to get at that Blofeld is running this camp ostensibly to cure allergies, which is a bizarre yeah, yeah. thing. So but, here's, yeah, yeah. here's the, here's his plot. So each of these women have a specific food allergy. Like one woman who looks suspiciously like Meg Ryan, she's allergic to chicken. One woman's allergic to corn. One woman's allergic to potatoes. All these women have one food allergy, but yet their only meal they get to eat here is the food that they're allergic to. Because through some sort of transcendental LSD hypnosis, Blofeld has made them believe that they are not allergic to the foods that they're allergic to. But he's also planning on having them spread out across the world so that they can event- essentially poison the world's <laughs> agricultural supply of those foods and yes. hold the world for ransom. That's that's the whole plot, which is that's a marvelous plot. Uh, yeah, he's he's crazy. basically doing this weird Suspiria lighted uh, funhouse hypnosis to turn all the women into Manchurian candidates to yeah. neutralize the world's uh, <laughs> agriculture, which makes very little sense because this is yeah. something that occurred to me. Uh, there's twelve girls; two of them are English. We have the aforementioned one who looks quite a lot like uh, Meg Ryan, which is uh, Ruby Bartlett, who actually ends up f- f- getting in bed with, with Bond. We'll discuss that later. Uh, yeah. She's one of the English... Joanna Lumley, in an incredibly early role, I think one of her first film roles, is the other English girl. And then a lot of them have other things like Scandinavian girl, Irish girl, Australian girl, Chinese girl, American girl. They have wonderful names that these women are... They're really afforded an identity in this film. But it just occurs to me, if you're disrupting the entire world's food supply, why are there two English girls... Um, and one American girl. Uh, I mean, if it takes two women to take out England's contribution to international agriculture, <laughs> I'm just thinking, how many women is it going to take out to take out the Midwest of the US alone? Yeah, or- gonna, I, they, there should be a bunch of American ladies there. An Irish girl? Okay, Ireland is a fair amount of agriculture, but I feel maybe one of the English girls could cover the ground there, the terrain. They're pretty well in, you know, interlocked. Uh, there's no, I mean, there's no Japanese girl there. Yeah, uh, never, you know, never mind. Yeah, you have one Chinese girl who has to take out a continent of a billion people. Yeah, yeah, an Indian girl. There's no one from South America. The whole of South America, apparently, Argentinian steak's gonna be better than ever after <laughs> That's, this. So that'll become a currency. Blofeld's <laughs> world. It's a very odd plan. I'm not sure he thought it through, but so so be it. He has all the women, and all these women are basically are are. Just, I mean, they all have, like, variants of, like, uh, their national dress. It's this really weird scene. And only three of them, I think, get to talk at all. Joanna Lumley gets one line. And then I think after that, uh, pretty much uh, Ruby Bartlett, played by Angela Scholar, who uh, fairly now actually also played Buttercup in Casino Royale. So she actually has a distinction of being a kind of a Bond girl in two separate Bond mm-hmm. franchises. Um, oh, yeah. She is kind of a feature character, and then Nancy, the Hungarian girl. Hungary apparently is a major agricultural powerhouse here. Um, so, played yeah. by played by Catherine Shell. She's the other. She's the other Bond girl, or the other one of these women who gets any kind of lines. Joanna Lumley, I say, gets one line, and that's basically all the other women are just set dressing. They don't. They have nothing to do with anything, uh, which is a bit of shame. I was looking through a lot of them, and a lot of them are like. Um, uh, several of them appeared in Hammer films, like The Scars of Dracula, and um, the Scandinavian girl Julia Ega, who kind of appeared in a couple of like sexy, naughty British comedies. Uh, she did manage to appear in Hammer's Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which is 
maybe the most batshit insane Hammer film ever. It's a Hammer Golden Harvest co-production, and it's crazy. Uh, she's a, a Miss Norway runner-up and Miss Universe contestant, apparently. So that was her thing. One of the weird things I found is apparently the Australian girl, Anuska Hempel, who has nothing to do in this movie, pretty much, but apparently now is a world-renowned uh, interior designer and architect who's designed yachts for the rich, rich and famous and everything. So, oh, okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of interesting that the a lot of these women actually went on to have fairly interesting careers and... Uh, Honestly, here they're just they are set dressing. Unfortunately, as much as we want to try and I'm trying to award progressive points wherever I can, but they're not helping me here. You know what I like about you, Jack? You go through these painstaking lengths to get the <laughs> encyclopedic knowledge of all the bit players in every Bond film we've watched. I think that's great. That's what, that's You're what great, I'm buddy. looking through all this stuff, and I mean, oh, and I forgot there's an Israeli girl as well. They're taking out Israel's agriculture mm, right. too. And, uh, yeah, so, so that's, okay, that's all. And a German girl. The Indian girl, actually, uh, Zahira, did appear in several Bollywood films, so she went on to a film career separate to this. The weirdest one, actually, and I, I kind of, I'll, I can brush back this against this, um, when we go through running the numbers, but the American girl is played by, uh, a girl named Danny Sheridan, although I think her real name is something else, is Sally Adams, apparently. But, uh, she hooked up with Telly Savalas in this movie, mm-hmm. and, uh, apparently they had a child together and they lived together for many, many years, so there you go. And Telly Savalas is 25 years older than her in real life, so that actually beats any indiscretion in this actual movie. But, just a weird thing I found out while I was digging through here that has nothing to do with the movie that will not be on the test yeah yeah all right so uh gosh where do i even go from there um where we, yeah the angels of death and and that's blofeld's plan in the spinning restaurant atop the, the alps that's true so which Bond- it is actually a spinning restaurant that's what they it's not actually a spinning restaurant in the movie but that's the prop it's this great overlook of the the mountains that was mm. just i think just being built at this point it was not it hadn't been opened yet. They kind of got in there. They had to. They had to actually rig it for electricity themselves to make it work while they were shooting it. Yeah. So, um, moving on with the film, Bond basically spends the next evening uh, sneaking out of his room and into the bedrooms of the other women. Uh, eventually, Blofeld catches him. Bond uh, is caught, and he's thrown into a. Um, uh, what 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 am I looking for here? Those. Uh, the ski lift, he's caught in like the ski lift control room is where he's stored, but Bond manages to escape and ski down the hill. Blofeld's men ski after him, um, which leads to a thrilling chase down to the bottom of the mountain where there is the village. And at the village, this is where Bond regroups with Tracy, who I get delighted every time I see her appear because uh, Bond at this point, he's like defeated. He looks very vulnerable and scared and cold and Lazenby is like shaking and he's just hiding on... He's, like, hiding on a bench in a coat and trying to run from Blofeld's men. And, like, he he thinks he's pretty much fucked. And then yeah. and then uh, Tracy appears. And, like, every time Bond looks up, and I, like, get the same smile on I, my face that Bond does on his, where she goes, hello, James. I I love that she comes back. Yeah, it's it's a gr- it's really interesting sequence because Bond girls habitually bail Bond out in the other movies, and they do it without ever getting credit for it. Honestly, I'm trying like thinking in You Only Live Twice, Aki repeatedly shoots people that Bond because Bond never looks behind him in that movie. And these <laughs> dudes keep creeping up behind him, and they're about to do something awful to him, and then Aki shoots them, and Bond just kind of goes like, "Oh, thanks" or whatever, or doesn't even say that, you know, professional courtesy. This is one like you say. 
genuinely bails him out. Bond is on the ropes. This, we've never seen him like this in the, the franchise up until this point. This is genuinely Bond running scared. Right. Um, and yeah, it's it's a very... and It's something Sean Connery never had to do. And Lazenby, for all his non-acting credentials, Lazenby actually plays a Bond with a much wider range of uh, situations to get through, including mm-hmm. actually being in love with someone, which uh, Connery never had to pretend to be, no and way. then actually, actually being vulnerable, actually being you know on the cusp of death, being scared. And again, I think all this stuff really comes to. I think it's really unfair the way that people, your critics at the time, uh, you know, really couldn't accept Lazenby. I guess as a pretty boy male actor who kind of fell into the role. I think there was maybe a little bit of a, a tendency to just kind of you know, be very, very critical of anything he did, but I think really he's got a lot to do here and he really does very well. Yeah, this and that's and that sequence where Lazenby is running and hiding from death is where his strengths play out the most because it's largely um uh, I think part of the problem with uh people have with Lazenby's performance is that uh his accent isn't quite as convincing because he is an Australian playing an Englishman. But um here where he's just uh, a silent soldier it, trying to survive in a minefield uh, is just a lot of remarkable little touches that he does with like his body language and how you know like you would you would imagine Connery could like walk through an explosion and survive but Lazenby <laughs> like is just like he gets scared by a guy in a bear costume that's how that's how yeah. fearful he is of his, it's of true. his life and situation if Sean Connery had showed up in there, he would have, like, ducked into a chalet and stolen someone's tuxedo they mysteriously left there, and he would have yeah. walked out with a drink in hand. And like, he would said, have been fine. And he would have said, I'll bring it back later, and then <laughs> drive off the mountain. Something like that, yeah. Lazenby is, he's scared, and he's in yeah. a little ski outfit, like, the, he's, he's wearing the clothes he escaped in, he knows yeah. everyone's looking for him. And yeah, meets up with Tracy, who conveniently shows up there I get she knew the general location he was in so she decided to just hang out in the nearest village which yeah. is not too much of a stretch it's a little convenient but it's not too much of a, a little stretch. but I will buy it this is the best bond film after all Oh yes, there yeah. we go. I mean, it is grounded. It's not like they met in space or something. Yeah. Uh, so always, always a plus. I just want to before we move on, let's just give a quick shout out. I want to give a shout out to uh, Bernard Horsfall, who plays Sean Campbell. You wouldn't know his name within it. Who plays Bond's dumbest ally? Um, which I, I feel like we we have a certain uh, distance in this. Uh, there's a guy who follows Bond to who's supposed to be helping Bond and yeah. uh, follows him to the Swiss thing, and pretty much kind of tracks his way up the mountain, climbs it because he's trying to get up to help Bond, and climbs the mountain and he's caught climbing the mountain and Blofeld kills him. And that's basically his entire role. And I, I, I mean, you, you mentioned in off, off camera, we were off mic, you were talking about how you appreciate his, his, his kind of get up and go. Like he does actually go out and just do stuff himself. He totally goes and gets all his mountaineering equipment and climbs up, but, like, he does kind of immediately get caught, and I don't know if he even distracts them from dealing with James Bond. Yeah, I mean, he does... Uh, there's one flaw is that, yes, he does get caught, but I do... Yeah, I do like that there's this this character sort of lurking in the shadows that only Bond is aware of, and and just that these, these little silent meetings that they have with each other... Like earlier on when Bond's in the lawyer's office cracking open the safe, that guy is his contact hiding out in the construction site and he sends Bond's suitcase of tools up with a crane lift to the window of the lawyer's uh, office um, and helps him uh, get out 
get his mission out through that way. And and yeah, That's true. I, I, I yes, just he like yeah, he's got there. a he's got a man in the field, and I I always sort of like these little touches where Bond is not entirely alone. But um, somebody, I, I always thought it was, I guess he's a member of MI6, but he could easily be one of Draco's men. Um, I've never looked into the, uh, and his, I don't even think he's named in the film. Like, Sean Campbell's is uh, what he's credited as. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I think I think he's a, he's just uh, adds to the flavor of the overall story and Bond's mission. Sure, he, if nothing else, he provides a, a grisly reminder of Bond's potential fate. Yeah. When Bond goes on the run down the, the, the cliffs, he could end the Blofeld hangs the other guy up there to make it look yeah. like a ski accident. Yeah, he is. He does have. He is the 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 Bond ally you cannot kill. There's the always that one, but then there's always the ally that you can kill. Just as a reminder that even though you cannot kill Bond in a film, death could happen to Bond. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, fast forwarding a bit through the film, Bond and Tracy hide out in a barn. Bond in a scene that I don't think Connery could ever play convincingly. Bond or Lazenby as Bond convinces his love to Tracy. They decide they're going to get married. The next morning, they attempt to ski down the mountain, but Blofeld causes an avalanche with a flare, captures Tracy. Bond uh, returns to MI6, where they reveal that uh, Blofeld is holding the world ransom. They're going to pay the ransom so he doesn't destroy the world's agricultural supply. Bond says, fuck that. He gets Tracy's father. They get a fleet of helicopters. They fly (laughs) up to Peace Gloria and basically enact a storm the castle mission to save Tracy and stop Blofeld in probably the greatest climax of a Bond film ever. Now, I know you have some issues with uh, the action, and you actually pointed out a glaring flaw with the process shots of the helicopters online. That's true. There's a weird one. Um, If you're watching this, do pay attention as the helicopters move in. There's some weird... They fade in and out in visibility. There's a clear... um, I'm not sure what exactly they're doing, if they're dissolving between multiple shots of the helicopters coming in, or if they're adding extra helicopters into it through composites. But there's something goes a little wrong, and some of them fade in and out and have varying degrees of transparency. Uh, just yeah. yeah, I mean, my my issue with the with the action sequence here, I think the editing is very good. There's a great sense of speed to it, but mm-hmm. I do find that the action sequence in this film, for me, and it's something I often have a difficulty with in a lot of, like the big blockbuster films, is that there's a kind of a, a reliance on special effects and on process shots particularly there's a huge amount of rear projection and uh, composites and stuff to do the skiing sequences particularly the big ski chase down the hill at the end uh, down the mountain i suppose not really a hill it's more cinematic than that and in these yeah. kind of things uh, to me i just it, it's not that they're badly done it's just that they they always they don't they don't excite me in the same way that you know a good fist fight really gets kind of really lands or maybe something just a little bit more touch outlandish. I don't know, like something where it has to be done with, uh, has to be done with special effects because you couldn't do it in reality at all. So I don't know. There's just something about the, the action sequences that kind of doesn't fully work for me. And even down to the final chase, it's, 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 it's very well edited, but it's just not to me a, a particularly stirring action spectacle. And that may just be a personal preference of mine. It may, I, your mileage may vary on this. You may well find it much more convincing than I do, as I think, Jake, you probably do. I yeah, I get I get enthusiastic like a little kid on Christmas. <laughs> Speaking of Christmas, this is the only Bond film that you can consider as a Christmas film. 
And that's not including uh, The World is Not Enough with Denise Richards. Yeah, yeah. Character just, named Dr. Christmas Jones. I was just about to say. <laughs> yeah. Christmas only comes once a year. Anyways, uh, that's, the, that's the last spoiler alert. That's the last line of that movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really good because you see James Bond has sex with her yeah. a lot. But, really good. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I love the balls to the wall action of this climax. I love Bond getting out of the helicopter, sliding on the the frozen curling track as he as the James Bond play, theme plays, and he starts gunning down guys on his stomach as he's sliding towards them, which was apparently thought up of on the day of the shoot. They're like, hey, why don't we do this? Uh, oh, nice call. I, lo- I love that the uh, the goons that he was taken to Draco's office from are in it earlier. The uh, the guy who he fights in the hotel room is burning motherfuckers with a flamethrower. I love the random bit of the Bond entering the lab and the scientist throws a bottle of acid at him and it melts the glass door and <laughs> Bond gives it a very quizzical look before moving forward. I love uh, yeah. I love Tracy impaling the guy on the wall art. Uh, it's just it's fantastic. It's those sequences on the storm thing. I'm not that one. I think is that's a pretty solid action sequence, and that's very much yeah. in line with like the storming of the volcanic bunker and you only live twice and the storm your doctor no like it is real. That's a classic James Bond. You say storming the base thing. I'm more thinking the ski elements, the luge elements. Um, the stock car sequence is also a really great action sequence. I like that. Stock car is fantastic. Of, there's a great sense of physicality to that and real props being used. It's not quite up there with, say, uh, I'm trying to think, um, six, I'm tr- I don't remember when Jack Hill's Pit Stop was released. It would have been the late 60s, too. I don't know which came first. But honestly, if you do want to see stock car action, that is... Watch that one first. That's an underrated film. But if you want it in color and James Bond involved, this is not a bad surrogate. Yeah, 69, same year. So there you go, yeah. to check this out, yeah. But, um, yeah, so uh, speaking of the Winter Olympics, which are going on as we record this, uh, Bond takes down Blofeld in a bobsled chase, which uh, I think is very appropriately and frantically edited. But um, I, you mentioned, I think you expressed some disappointment with it, but I think it's a, I think it's a very exciting scene. Um, I guess part the, of my uh, issue with it is is also, and, maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's just this greater mindset of it is also I'm less taken with the whole physical Blofeld thing. So the concept yeah. of Bond chasing Blofeld in a bobsled is sort of like, yeah, Blofeld, to be like, I just feel, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like it's, it's just, it doesn't work as well for me. It just, it doesn't feel like, you know, this is where Blofeld belongs. So maybe, maybe it's just a disconnect on that level. And I, I can respect they're trying to change things up, but it's just, I'm not a hundred percent sold on this. And still, I still enjoyed this movie quite a lot, but you know, it's just little personal touches here and there. Maybe I'm not as, maybe not as taken on those. Yeah. All right. So wrapping up the film, Blofeld's lair is destroyed. His plan is foiled. Bond and Tracy get married. It's a very emotional day for everyone at MI6 who are attending. Uh, Bond tosses his mat or his mat, his hat to Money Penny, <laughs> who uh, sorrowfully catches it. And as Bond and Tracy ride off. Uh, into the sunset, seemingly all is well. Blofeld comes along, and he, he and his henchwoman, uh, Irma Bunt, who, who we who's actually, not mentioned. we've not mentioned yeah. at this point, but she actually, yeah, she plays a heavy role in, in Blofeld's plot, and actually nothing uh, ever comes to her. So she, this is her first and last appearance, but I think yes, she's kind of she, like uh, Rosa Klebb, in a sense. 
Definitely very, very similar. She never reappeared, and she was going to, but unfortunately, the actress who played her, Ilsa Steppa, died three days after this film premiered. Oh, <clears> I She died of a heart that. attack. That's, so, wow. yeah, so they, they just wrote her out. They, I guess, the respect for her turn in this film. Because, yeah, she's a great, she's a great kind of, a, <clears throat> excuse me, henchwoman. And, yeah, she, she kills Tracy. She's the one who fires yeah. the gun while Blofeld is driving. So, I mean, she's she really draws blood you know, in this movie compared to any other hench person who, I mean, I'm thinking that I like odd job kills the sister of one of the girls in Goldfinger and who could care less. But, um, you know, this is a real, this is a real blow because they've just been married and it leads to certainly, I think probably the most melancholy scene in probably the James Bond history. Oh, I, easily, easily. And it, it, this, this viewing in particular really got to me. Um, I, uh, because I was just looking back at the entire film and, you know, Bond saves her in the ocean. He, throughout the film, Bond is, is trying to tame Tracy and discourage her from this, this like terrible, uh, suicidal life. And they go through this whole storm the castle mission to save her. And it, it seems like all is, uh, all is well. And then it just rips from the, rug is pulled out from underneath you and you're just left with this real sucker punch of an ending uh the, my only my only issue with the ending is that after moments after tracy's dead we hear just a few beats of the song uh we have all the time in the world and then the monty norman theme blares up <laughs> so it which feels so incongruous to the scene we just experienced like don't worry guys bond will be back but yeah. don't worry about tracy He'll get better, don't worry. He didn't, you know, he loved yeah. her and you should feel sad about it, but honestly, he'll be, he'll be fine. There'll yeah. be other women. And it's, Thanks. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Tracy is easily my favorite of all the Bond girls because she's, you know, the one that feels the most real and human to me and I, and is easily the most fleshed out character and, um, and that's not to say they're not any other great Bond girls, but, uh, we never quite get one quite like Tracy up uh, until easily, uh, Vesper Lind in Casino Royale, the, the 2006 mm, version. Sure. But, uh, yeah, yeah, Tracy's, Tracy is magnificent. Um, just, there are just so many things and that's the end of the film. There are just so many things to it that I, I love. And it's the only Bond film where I can sit down and enjoy. And then as soon as it's over, I immediately want to put it on again. I get that feeling every single time I watch it. For sure, yeah. No, it's and I, I'll say like even if I have more reservations about this, this is definitely I think a very a very enjoyable Bond film, and it it hangs together very well. It's got great. We talk about like production design, which is by Sid Kane. Um, yeah, this is actually this is actually his only Bond film as production designer. He had art direction for some of the other Bond films prior to this, but this it looks to be maybe he got bumped up on this one. Um, Sid Kane did like the, the sets are great they have the uh, more sprawling layers for super villains and so on but we also have some really nice location use uh, early on in the film to go to Portugal briefly to a bullfighting yeah. arena which honestly may not be you know bullfighting is not exactly the most hip cool thing to be involved in but it kind of works nope. as like a colorful <laughs> uh, back backdrop for the whole thing um, wouldn't be the Bond thing's only misstep in terms of uh this and that. We've also have the animal cruelty, I mean, you know, of, of holding that cat and you only live twice, which is forevermore going to be my favorite James Bond memory. As a as a person who lives with three cats, that just feels very real to me. That's a good uh, trying, one, yeah. Trying to hold on to an animal that does not want to be there. Uh, the, 
But yeah, um, so I'm I'm trying to think, uh, like in terms of moving forward with this. I mean, are you? Do you have any other like real interesting kind of like like what's your take on? I suppose let, let's talk about this actually. Um, I guess I guess you've already answered this, but this film it was not received well critically when it first came out. There was a real push against it. It was slower than the previous James Bond movies. It kind of, it was more grounded, but really, I guess it was really centered on Lazenby being, just not being Sean Connery. But then, as things moved on, people like Steven Soderbergh has claimed this is the only James Bond movie that's worth watching more than once for reasons other than enjoyment. That he said, like, the filmmaking, he says, is really great. Yeah. Christopher, no- Christopher Nolan's uh, uh, mountaintop snow uh whatever assault in in inception is clearly lifted straight from this and i don't i didn't i say i don't think christopher nolan would deny that for a moment it's it's the same kind of a concept entirely it's a very clear nod to it um apparently 007 magazine which is a real magazine apparently in 2012 had a reader's poll and uh, this film was voted by the the readers of 007 magazine as the best james bond film followed by goldfinger and then from russia with love so the film has really been reclaimed, and not just like not just reclaimed, but say being enshrined as a really special James Bond film, and perhaps the best of all of them. Yeah, um, and and this and it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you've said it, you think it's the best. I do kind of wonder a little bit if there's maybe a. F- I guess it depends on what you're looking for in the film. I do wonder if maybe there's an element of the kind of the pendulum swinging a little bit further back the other way that since it was so muted in its response when it first came out, it's worth noting this critically, it didn't do well financially. It didn't do as well as Thunderball or you only live twice, but it still did really, really well. This did not, was not a flop by any stretch of the imagination Mm -hmm. commercially. Um, although it did suffer other elements like, for example, because of the lack of gadgetry, uh, toy tie-ins were much more limited, for example, on this film than on the other ones. It wasn't like a tricked-out Aston Martin to sell or yeah. you know, some other ridiculous thing. Um, I do wonder if maybe there's an, a little element of, you know, kind of... If it had been more fondly greeted at the start, would people have reset it like that? I, I don't know, like, because I do think Goldfinger and From Russia With Love are... To me, I prefer them. I think they're more archetypal. They have a, They have more kind of of the stuff that I really associate with James Bond. So I don't, I don't know. I know. And I feel like sometimes there's a tendency in cinema that, you know, people get really protective of something when they really like it. And they just kind of like, you know, they, they really build it up. I don't, I don't know. I mean, cause it's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I think maybe it's just a question of personal taste, but like this one really has been heavily reclaimed by the fan base. And I suppose maybe it's so unanimous in its reclamation at this point that maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just, on the outside looking in that's yeah, and that's not a bad observation I, I will admit that the the first time i saw this film um i think i was like 18 or 19 i i will i'll be honest i was not crazy about it it wasn't until i watched it again a couple of years later that i really just start started to uh to just sort of admire everything that was going for it um and you know we've we've discussed dr no established the formula goal or from russia with love uh fine-tuned it goldfinger perfected it and then thunderball and you only live twice took it to the extreme but i think this is this is the bond film that and much like how it, it it transcends 
the idea of one man playing Bond. And I think that very notion, it just transcends everything that makes it a Bond film, a Bond film. It has all these elements in place, but everything about them just feels just so more like assured and natural here. And how even without Connery in it, I think this, this is the film that proves that the series can survive without Connery because as much as we love the first five films, you know, and there establishes a clear formula that goes on for half a century. Uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service is the one film that proved that, you know, we can enjoy these with other men as the lead. And I think, and that, yeah, as as much as people hate on Lazenby's performance, I think he does quite bring something different from all the other actors. And, you know, it's often said that he plays Bond as a human. I I agree with that wholeheartedly. So I yeah. I, I get... I get maybe just like as much as I, I, cause I love all of these films and I can, uh, even the like ones I don't like, I can put on and enjoy some aspect of it. But this one, I just get a little bit more from, and I, I just like every frame is packed. It's like, I think it's the most gorgeously shot of all the Bond films. I think as you mentioned, the production design is the finest. The, everyone's costume is outstanding. Like I've mentioned, um, and, and all the, all the perform, all the supporting players are aces. I, Dinah Riggs steals the show for me, but this, this is the one for me. This is if, you know, and I think it also works as a standalone Bond film. So if you're worried about jumping into the series here, I say, go for it. Watch on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Watch it. Make it your new favorite Christmas movie. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah, for, for certainly, um, this feel, it has a feeling, it's bigger than Dr. No, but it's kind of got the same lean kind of straightforwardness that Dr. No has. Mm-hmm. It is the reset. It's kind of like, let's rein it back in and, and rebuild. And of course, they intend to rebuild with Lazenby. Um, Lazenby, I suppose, talking about how where Lazenby went from this, oh boy, God, his managers, he, he made some bad decisions or, you know, what are ostensibly bad decisions? Who knows? Depending on your philosophy on life, perhaps he's doing just fine. Um, he turned down, he, he rejected a seven film contract to play James Bond, yeah. you know, and this, and this was his, you know, he was, he was a male model, but honestly acting pays at least as well as modeling. And it's certainly a career that a man can continue for much longer in. Uh, it was handed to him, superstardom, and he, he turned it down in part because his manager convinced him that James Bond would never survive the liberated seventies, that yeah. he would look too out of date. Uh, I'm just looking, uh, later on, he turned down James Coburn's role in Sergio Leone's docu-sucker, oh. which is, oh, I mean, and wait, wait, that's fine, because James Coburn played it, but oops. And then his agent, apparently, I don't know if it's the same agent who advised him not to participate in Bond any further, but uh, an agent played down an offer to play Jesus in Monty Python's The Life of Brian as well. So Lazenby seemed to accidentally write himself out of several cult favourite films. Uh, he did go on to act in other films. His next film actually was Universal Soldier, I believe, which is not the uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle. This was made in, I think, the early 70s when it came out. And he, this is really a film he kind of played a major role in making himself. He wrote and he acted and he did, he or he co-wrote and he did some direction and this and that. I've not seen the film. I can't vouch for uh, what it's like, but I've never met anyone who's ever mentioned it either. So I'm going to suggest that maybe it's it may be an undiscovered classic, but it certainly didn't reinvigorate his career. Having turned down James Bond, he kind of got 
labeled as being difficult because he rejected Bond and that kind of, and he didn't help himself. He, he grew a beard and long hair in the wake of the James Bond film just for its release and showed up to the premiere looking entirely non James Bondish and pissed off everyone involved, yeah. basically the producers. So that, that got taken out. Um, he did go on to make some other films. He made some films with Golden Harvest in Hong Kong. He appeared in eight Emmanuel films in the 1990s, which is not a good sign for your acting <laughs> career, to appear in a Emmanuel film, which are, for those who may not know, is a notorious kind of softcore porno series. Yeah. But uh, with so many spin-offs and, and stuff, it's almost a comedy. But uh, by the 1990s, you're talking spin-offs of spin-offs of spin-offs. And he appeared in eight of them. So uh, that's interesting. He was apparently going to appear in Game of Death with Bruce Lee, uh, but then Bruce Lee died and Game of Death fell through and then it was, they famously recreated the movie around Bruce Lee uh, and it was terrible. It's a terrible film, but if you can watch the 40 minutes or so of footage they re-edited afterwards to Bruce Lee's instruction, that's the best Bruce Lee film, but the actual release film Game of Death is terrible because it's literally just a man in in, in a motorcycle helmet pretending to be Bruce Lee in between hastily cobbled together footage. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other weird little bits and pieces. I do want to mention, just because I think it's amazing as a weird coincidence, that uh, Ilsa Stepat, who played Irma Brunt, or Irma Bunt, who died just after the film premiered, she starred in 1950 in a German film called The Man Who Wanted to Live Twice. Hmm. That's a weird That's little thing. Weird coincidence, uh, yeah. No, nothing to do with the James Bond one, but there you go. I've not seen it. I don't know what it's like. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm just gonna jump in here. I don't I don't mean to to brag or anything, but uh, last summer I actually got to meet George Lazenby. Um, oh. There was a there was a movie theater that was hosting a local premiere here in LA of the Hu- the Hulu documentary uh, Becoming Bond, which uh, Lazenby. Um, shares his life story as you mentioned at the top of this podcast and e- everything that led to him getting the role in on her majesty's secret service and he was a very uh very delightful fellow um uh has this he very seems sort of very likable yeah he's he easily charmed the whole room that he was in he was very very nice and funny and av- he had like this avuncular quality to him and uh yeah i got to pop out back and uh met him shook his hand took a photo he was a uh, I'm just yeah happy to say that uh, I met the Bond in my favorite film. Nice, yeah. yeah. Lazenby, like I say, he seems like a nice guy. And I, I was taken, he, he made a quote in a 1969 interview. So this would have been just around the time the film was coming out. And probably maybe, at, this was after he already declared he wasn't going to play Bond again. Partially possibly because the offer had been rescinded, I don't know. But he, he had a quote where he says, Bond is a brute, I've already put him behind me, I will never play him again. Peace, that's the message now. Which yeah. is a, a kind of a, a wonderfully lovely perspective, um, you know, that he was going to, you know, James Bond is kind of an, an, a dinosaur. And, and I, I mean, honestly, as we go through this, James Bond is kind of permanently a dinosaur. He's kind of a lovable dinosaur, but like we're always, you know, we point out things in all of these films and we're like, yeah, that's not great. Um, so Lazenby <laughs> sort of pushed forward this. Um, it's really interesting. Um you know, I just thought that was a really interesting element to it that Lazenby, and and it's hard to tell how much of this is maybe licking his wounds and how much of it is him genuinely being forthright. He seemed very dis, very uh, disappointed in the system. I think Saltzman and Broccoli, you know, they they tried to turn him into Bond and sign a contract that would essentially make him 
make him James Bond, they'd remunerate him very, very well. I think it was a million dollars they were going to give him up front, which was huge money in 1969. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it down now either. But, um, you know, he turned all that down uh, because for various reasons, his agent advising it. And also he just, I think he was disappointed with the fact that he says that, you know, a lot of his suggestions for the film were not taken up and he he didn't get on so well with diana rigg and a few of the other people um it, it's there's varying reports of this but it seemed like he kind of felt more at home with the cat or with the crew he was you know he was a working class guy himself yeah as much as he was a male model and he felt like that the actors diana rigg and people were often not as concerned with the well-being of the crew who were often outside in freezing temperatures waiting to shoot and the you know so i think there was some tension there and he just he was a bit disillusioned and that maybe maybe caused him to give up on becoming honestly um, a great icon he's now Lazenby's now kind of the the joke almost like the the you know maybe not the joke now because i think it's been reclaimed but maybe sort of the stand in for for a bad bad business decisions, you know the the man who turned down being an icon, turned down financial stability. Yeah, or, or like if there's uh, any sort of uh, uh, string of people who've held one position, whoever held it the shortest amount of time, they're the George Lazenby of that yes. position. That's always the punchline. Um, yeah, I mean, hell, Timothy Dalton got two. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Timmy. Yeah, but uh, oh, I can't wait for those. Um, <laughs> Those let's, are good uh, ones for sure. Yeah, let's uh, let's run some numbers, Jack. All right. Yes, absolutely. We we're keeping the numbers running, and um, I suppose I'll, I'll probably break this out a little bit later on as we go, just to keep it going. Uh, body count, and I think breaking it out, Sean Connery. What is Sean Connery's body count? His body count up until this point across five films is uh, sixty-one killed, and we mentioned that nice. the body counts were spiraling out of control by the time we got to the last few films. So, uh, 61, the last film, You Only Live Twice, Bond killed 20 people. Thunderball, he killed 21. That's the highest thus far. In this film, we go back, James Bond kills only six people in this film, which is the second lowest. Dr. No, the very first film, Bond only kills three people on camera. He does blow up a base full of people, so we don't know what the exact body count is, but... You know, this is a much, as I say, a much more toned down film. It does, however, benefit from having the, by far and away, the grisliest death of anyone in a Bond film thus far, which is where he leads a, a man to try and ski in front of a snowblower and he gets sucked in underneath and, and red blood filled <laughs> snow shoots out across the, the Alpine plains. Yeah. Yeah, so he has a Fargo effect. And, and Bond quips he had a lot of guts. Uh, this so this uh and i think what it must be i had his first kill is probably also one of my favorite kills in the series is where he knocks the guy over the edge of the mountain and we get this glorious 15 second shot of his body just silently yes. falling towards earth <laughs> and then it just thuds in like a wily e coyote cloud of dust <laughs> yeah he falls for quite a while there um yeah. that's that's pretty impressive so yes he uh yeah he kills six people and most of it's and takes him an hour and 37 minutes to kill anyone uh in this film and so it's really only in the conclusion that he starts to to get to this and then he you know just shoots a couple of people during it um during the the storming of the base so we're up to 67 total body count low low numbers here but you know we'll move on from this 
So next in the body count, of course, is we're keeping track of sexual partners and age differences between them and James Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, this it, it scores much more on the curve this time around. There's three women, um, and I took a special note. He sleeps with three different women in his movie, and two of them he sleeps with consecutively in the same night. Yeah. Which is... Certainly his patriotism is is astounding here because uh, he keeps talking about how he only does this for the country or for his country. So, um, yes, yeah, so he sleeps with, uh, obviously, with uh, Countess Tracy de Vicenzo, who he, who he weds. So, you know, that's very romantic. Age difference-wise, this is a bit of a kicker. Diana Rigg was 31. Lazenby is the youngest James Bond at 29. So Rigg is actually two years older. So congratulations. That um, doesn't you know, raise any major alarm bells. It doesn't quite match the, the five-year age gap between Connery and, and Pussy Galore, but so be it. So, um, let's see. Then he also sleeps with uh, Ruby Bartlett, uh, who's one of the Angels of Death. Mm-hmm. She was uh, 24 around at the time, so mm-hmm. she's five years younger, which is not absolutely dreadful. That's, you know, they're both in their 20s. And then he also sleeps with Nancy, who's Catherine Schell, who's the other Angel of Death, the Hungarian Angel of Death. Standing in for Hungary's uh, obviously world famous agricultural uh, system, and my cat just tried to jump in my lap and failed miserably. If anyone heard it, <laughs> a falling noise, that's what that was. Yeah. Well done. So uh, she Shell was twenty five and Lazenby was twenty nine, so only four years. So this is actually not that bad. It really helps that that Lazenby is only twenty nine. That they hired a younger man. It really brought this much more in check. Uh, so we have nothing close to our current record age difference, which is 13 years between Sean Connery and Mia Hama and uh, You Only Live Twice. But it is, as I mentioned, worth noting that Telly Savalas on the set hooked up with one of the Angels of Death with Sally Adams, uh, the American girl, and he was 25 years older than her and they hooked up on set and had a kid together and lived together for many years. So I guess happy ending. Uh, so, you know, and that by far, 25 years age difference totally beats the hell out of anything that James Bond has achieved up until this point. So once again, real life makes the movie look actually pretty okay. So in terms of the running total, that's 14 women, different women that James Bond has slept with across six fi- or five films at this point. 14 women. This is like Seinfeld numbers. Uh, and he adds three more, so we have seventeen, and he also gets married. That yeah. we'll never have, we'll never have to mention that again. Yeah. Uh, that he gets married, that doesn't happen again. Although he did get, he got married in the last movie too, but it was a sham. Yeah, that was a over. stage. So thing. this was a real, honest to goodness, holy matrimony, and then she got shot. So yes. Yeah. So do you do you have budget numbers on this? Case? I sure do. So uh, this film cost a little bit less than the previous couple films, a budget of seven million dollars, which is uh, equivalent to forty-seven million today. Uh, only grossed twenty-two million domestic. Um, and then just to compare uh, with our top-of-the-line winner, Thunderball, that grossed sixty-four million dollars uh, domestic. So, yeah. yeah, one third of that. That's uh, roughly $147 million today. Uh, only went on to go $82 million worldwide, which is uh, roughly $554 million today. Right. So, but, uh, as, we, as we said, still by no means a flop. but Nothing to scoff at, by sure. Yeah, yeah, but, but not Thunderball money. No, yeah. This, the, we'll, we'll, we'll be a while before we get to any more Thunderball uh, money. <laughs> But, uh, It'll be a yeah. long time before I ever see any Thunderball money, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. 
I'll need eight more jobs. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, 1969, directed by Peter Hunt. Um, Jack, where uh, where can the good people find you? Or uh, you, before before I say that, was there anything else uh, you wanted to add about the movie? Or no, no, I think I think we've covered all manner of weird uh, weird crap no one could possibly care about, coupled with actually discussing the film. So uh, no, I think we're good on that front. Yeah, this we, is we a, did we we did never one. meant. We never, we never mentioned Olympa, the, who is kind of a Bond girl, who's uh, Dra- Draco's lover. Uh, she kind of appears. She's like the probably the most anonymous, sexy lady. Almost, um, I guess, next to um, oh, what's his name from from her Majesty, or from Russia with Love, the his Bond's Turkish uh, contact. I can't remember his name. Oh, um, Ali Karimbe. Yeah, Karen Bay. Yeah, Karen Bay's thirsty girlfriend, which I noted in 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 that one, who's his yeah. girlfriend he hooks up with. She she's like the next most anonymous lady in this, but she, I I just mention her just because she is kind of a, a Bond girl, Olympe. She sort of shows up. She's dubbed by Nikki Van Der Zyl, or Zyl, I don't know how to pronounce that, which continues uh, her run as yeah. the voice of all of the women in James Bond. Diana Rigg did not need to be dubbed because she's English, which. Yeah. I guess help with that, but yeah, I think that covers all of the random ephemera that I've I've I jotted will, down. I'll add one thing uh, in sure. the sequence where Bond uh, breaks into the lawyer's office so he can crack open his safe. Um, Bond, as he's waiting, he picks up a newspaper to read it, and he feels something off about the newspaper and finds that there's a Playboy magazine hidden in the newspaper. And then after he steals a photocopy of the documents in the safe. He takes the Playboy magazine with him. <laughs> that is true. Actually, that that is something that's worth noting. I think is that this is is this the only James Bond movie with actual nudity? Because you can briefly glimpse a topless woman in the Playboy when he's carrying it away. Uh, I feel that was the 1969 kind of uh, production code was fumbling. You know, this is around the time when America was opening up its film production. Just a little, it's very brief, but of course I paid attention because I'm a very studious film watcher. Uh, and uh, I noticed that was... Yeah, mm-hmm. at the uh, at the ex- the risk of sounding like a pervert, there, there definitely are little <laughs> gl- glimpses of uh, some nips here and there throughout the series. So uh, that's uh, There probably is. Maybe I just need to revisit be, them in HD. Yeah, there'll be Easter eggs. Ooh, there yeah. we go. I re- yeah, I, I do recommend, in all seriousness, I do recommend a Blu-ray box set uh, of the of the series. Yes, yeah, so you, you've told me to look forward to seeing Roger Bay, or Roger Moore's uh, stunt double in Glorious HD. I'm looking forward to that for sure. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. All right. So, uh, yeah, I think now that about does it. Uh, bond. Uh, bond, bond. Uh, Jack, where can the good people find you online? Should you uh, wish I can- you found I, I can be found on Twitter, generally speaking. If you want to get in contact with me, I am realjackeason at twitter.com. Mm-hmm. Very good. And uh, I'm at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. You can also reach out to our general Twitter account. We're at Optimism Vaccine. Or if you have any uh, questions or comments, suggestions, you can email us at optimismvaccine.com. If you like what you've been hearing and you want to hear more, well, you're in luck because we plan on doing the entire series. But uh, if you want to leave your thoughts or uh, leave a positive review, go on to iTunes, give us five stars, and uh, write a comment. We would greatly appreciate it. Uh, That about does it for us uh, for this month. Uh, Tune in next month for Your Ears Only will return with Diamonds Are Forever. Have a good night, everyone. Good night, guys.